This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In the oil and gas industry, the boom-bust cycle is constant. Prices spike, drillers rush in, prices drop, and the drilling subsides. But what if there's never another boom? Some in the industry fear that's the case on Colorado's western slope. And yet, CPR business reporter Ben Marcus found some drillers make it work. These boom-bust cycles are such a part of the DNA of the industry that some guys can measure their career by them. Don Simpson is a senior vice president of Ursa Operating Company, and he says sometimes these busts last just a year. Sometimes they last a lot longer. I've been through probably six or seven cycles since I've been doing oil and gas work. Simpson comes off as low-key, not a particularly excitable guy. That's probably the right personality type for anyone drilling natural gas wells on the western slope. This downturn has been long and painful. Natural gas prices are still half what they were 10 years ago. Since then, the Grand Junction area has lost 10,000 jobs. But still, Simpson seems optimistic. Oh, sure. Yeah, I think we're, I think we're producing. We have an abundant resource on the west slope. Uh, we're producing uh, at uh, lower cost than we normally have. To say there's abundant resource is an understatement. An analysis by the U.S. Geological Survey last year found 66 trillion cubic feet of recoverable gas in the Peons Basin in western Colorado. That's enough to power the entire country for two years. It's the second largest gas reserve in the U.S. So there's plenty of natural gas, but most importantly, drillers have figured out how to lower the cost of drilling. So even with low prices, they can still make a profit. David Ludlam directs the Western Slope Colorado Oil and Gas Association. And so we've seen kind of a, a, a silent resurrection of almost 10 rigs now, uh, when just a few years ago we were at two. Of course, that's nothing like the 90-plus rigs of a decade ago, but he's not picky at this point. Ludlam says the prolonged downturn forced some companies to turn their focus to more profitable gas fields, like in Texas, opening the door for a new set of operators. And he says these new operators really understand the geology of where they're drilling. They've perfected their process. They have transformed the peons into a truly low-cost natural gas-producing region. One of the things about a market where prices are depressed is the most efficient operator wins. That's Bernadette Johnson, an analyst with Drilling Info in Littleton. Your ability to cut your costs, to do things better and faster, really starts to matter. It's not just our industry, it's any industry. Still, not every company can make it work in western Colorado. The costs are just too high. Part of the problem is that much of the land is federal. That comes with lengthy approval times for drilling. Sometimes the land is valued wilderness space, and there are lengthy studies. Environmentalists then often fight these developments in court, like a development near Paonia that had taken 10 years to get to the approval stage. So western Colorado is probably never going to be the cheapest place to produce natural gas, and it's competing with natural gas fields everywhere. So the the problem is the resource on the western slope is massive, but the resource in the northeast is massive, and the resource in the Permian is massive, and the resource in Louisiana is massive, and the resource on the Gulf of Mexico is still massive. That's thanks to new technologies, which have opened up drilling on previously unreachable gas reserves. And that's why there's renewed interest in exporting. Industry leaders hope that an export terminal in Oregon will get off the ground. There's a permit for the project after several failed attempts, and Colorado has a pipeline that runs near that. 
Asia is a tantalizing customer for all this energy. Any new demand is important because today it's a demand, it's a buyer's market, right? We are looking for demand. We can grow as much production as demand will grow. Demand is a limiter. When demand spikes, operators can increase production so quickly that gas prices soon fall again. That's great news for customers. Natural gas is a key fuel for electricity generation and heating, but it's not great for drillers. David Ludlam, who represents operators on the West Slope, says in a way they're victims of their own efficiency. It puts a lit upward lid on prices. If you get a signal you know, much higher than $3.50, a lot of new drilling is going to come online. And here's another twist. Oil producers on the Front Range and in Texas are also finding a lot of natural gas, almost as a byproduct. That's adding tons of supply to the market, which also pushes prices down meaning it's unlikely the Western Slope and its economy will boom again anytime soon. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. You heard there about the possibility of an export terminal in Oregon. Officials on Colorado's Western Slope hope that it will soon get federal approval. David Ludlam, who is in Ben's story, joins me now from our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction. Again, he leads the West Slope Colorado Oil and Gas Association. And hi, David. Good morning. I'm honored to be on the program with you. Nice to have you. This project is called Jordan Cove, and the plan is to build an export terminal on the Oregon coast to send natural gas from the Rocky Mountain region to Asia. A lot of emerging markets there. So uh, it gets drilled in western Colorado, piped to Oregon, and then cooled, I understand. Yeah, Ryan, It's. I think everybody can relate to an LNG uh, terminal when you think about how your barbecue grill works. You have a liquid propane tank. You open the valve, it's liquid, and as it uh, flows up to cook your hamburger, it turns into a gas. And that's exactly how liquefied natural gas works. It just so happens that the the ships that it sails on are bigger than a propane tank at your house. They're big enough to power an entire city for for many, many weeks. So it's it's an important project. Got it. So there are giant propane tanks taking taking this by sea to Asia. I want to clarify that you represent a trade association and you've been lobbying for this project, uh, including in Washington with the Trump administration, uh, but you don't actually work for the developer, which is a Canadian company. Uh, Let's talk about what this could mean for the Western Slope. How are you estimating what the economic impact could be if the feds allow construction of this terminal and thus a gateway to this new market? Four years ago, the Colorado Mesa University Unconventional Energy Center, in partnership with the uh, Grand Junction Economic Partnership, uh, sent us down a pathway through a document or an analysis that they conducted called the Peons to the Pacific Rim. And it was really an outline about how our massive natural gas reserves could enter the global stage, uh, affect geopolitics, improve our local economy, stabilize our drilling profiles, all these things. And that that was really the catalyst for us assessing what it could mean for us. I think there's a lot of variables involved. But the fact that we have, I mean, earlier you referenced, uh, you know, been lobbying this project, it's, it's not just us, it's a massive coalition that includes Governor Hickenlooper, who went to Asia on behalf of this project, uh, Senator Michael Bennett, Senator Cory Gardner, the Colorado Senate, the Denver Post, and a, a litany of uh, elected officials in Northwest Colorado. And, and I think that the fact that the coalition is so broad and diverse uh, and has been so committed to this in and of itself represents what a value prospect it offers to Western Colorado and the whole state. Well, I'd like to be precise about what you see that value 
uh, to be. Are, are there gas companies, for instance, that have told you they would start drilling in western Colorado if Jordan Cove is approved? Yes or no? You know, sure. When, when we look at the natural gas marketplace of, of North America, in some ways it's really a, a giant marketplace. We have such great infrastructure that, that gas can flow all over our country. And when, then when we look at the Rockies, it's really one big producing region. And having an export terminal on the West Coast, uh, it rises the tide for everybody, whether you're a producer in Utah, Wyoming, Colorado, because it's going to provide a regional price up, uplift that benefits everyone. Having said that, I know for a fact that we have some of the most competitive and dynamic companies in the Rockies who, if this project gets approved, will be competing for those contracts and very interested in providing that supply. But no matter who gets them, having a new market available to us. You know, you think about farmers in Colorado being so committed to wanting to have access to the Asian marketplace, whether it's beef or whether it's soybeans. Uh, you know, it's because the availability of that market allows all the all of the producers in agriculture to compete for those new markets. And it's the same with us. Okay, but it and doesn't so sound like you it, can say like, here today, specifically, we've got commitments if this, this thing gets built, that that's still a hope for you. Sure. Okay. I think that we want to set the table for competition that our companies can go compete for that new marketplace. But I don't. I think it's too early. There's too many variables to determine exactly how many rigs or how many jobs or how many wells would be drilled as a result. Right. If you get back to the 90 rigs that Ben mentioned in his story, that is unclear. We, we just heard from Ben about the economic challenges, though, of drilling in western Colorado. And uh, as you alluded to, it won't be the only region that can ship natural gas to Oregon to export through Jordan Cove. So how does Western Colorado deal with competition, I guess, from within its own state, from Wyoming to get gas to the export terminal? Well, we have a, we have a couple advantages. I think uh, one is that our companies have proven uh, over the last five years that they can compete with the best when it comes to utilizing technology, lowering their costs, uh, and, and, and competing head-to-head. We have one of the largest uh, metal recycling companies in the world who have bought reserves in the peon space, and they own their own natural gas as a permanent hedge on, on prices because of the value that our basin brings and the efficiency that we have in terms of producing natural gas. So I think that uh, in some ways, the performance of our operators over the last even five years demonstrates that they're going to be able to compete uh, for these contracts. But having said that, uh, maybe a better way to answer your question, Ryan, is a, a, a terminal like Jordan Cove would export, let's say, uh, a BCF, a billion cubic feet of gas per day. Okay. And that, that gas is going to be varied. It's going to come out of all kinds of basins because w- w- all of our basins are plumbed together with really good infrastructure. But, and that's going to provide an uplift in price for everybody. Whether you're providing gas to the terminal or not, you're going to get more for your gas out of this entire region. So it inevitably will benefit all producers and all communities who rely on severance tax and property tax for our production. This project needs to be approved by federal regulators. It's been denied twice, both times under the Obama administration. Uh, The Trump administration has suggested it'll approve Jordan Cove, although the federal agency reviewing this is independent. Just briefly, I'm curious about your visits to Washington. Uh, What did you hear on those trips about the fate of the project now? You know, as I referenced earlier, Ryan, when we look at the diversity and the bipartisan nature of the coalition that's been behind this project, you know, long before the Trump administration came onto the stage, we just view this as the next chapter. Our trip back to Washington was was inspired in the sense that we de- we were we were told that uh, this administration supports infrastructure of all kinds, but specifically uh, 
energy exports. Uh, but we were already committed to this idea that Jordan Cove transcends partisanship and that ultimately, because it makes so much sense for our country and for the world and for geopolitics today, that ultimately it'll get approved. Uh, yeah, there's going to be some stumbling blocks and yeah, it's going to take some patience and grit, but it makes too much sense. And that's why we have such a, a broad coalition behind the project. But there are those who believe it does not make sense environmentally. Let's talk about those concerns. So thus far... Most of the concerns have been raised in Oregon, where this export terminal would be, and that's where a section of pipeline would also have to be built. Uh, We'll hear more about that in a moment. Here in Colorado, there's already a pipeline, but more drilling, more rigs, as you hope for, always raises questions, particularly if it's close to homes and schools or on public land. Uh, With the Trump administration wanting to expedite things and get more drilling on public lands, I think those concerns will only grow for some people. So has your organization on the West Slope or your members spoken about the locations that more drilling might take place? Have there been agreements made or conversations had with local communities in anticipation? I think it's a conversation that has a focal point around the quality of Colorado's regulations generally. I think everybody you know who follows the news understands that Colorado has been in really what amounts to an ongoing rulemaking in oil and gas for the last decade. We have um, arguably the st- most stringent regulations in the country, if not the world. But there's still a uh, lot of to- a lot of friction when it comes to drilling near homes, near schools. So mm-hmm. are are you having proactive conversations with communities that might be affected? I think we have proactive conversations with communities that will be affected, irrespective of whether Jordan Cove, Cove comes online. I think that's just part of how do you do business in the Rockies uh, today in the energy sector. And those conversations always occur. And certainly if Jordan Cove resulted in some increased drilling, they would probably be more intense depending on where the drilling were to occur. But I, again, I, you know, I want to caution that, this, that Jordan Cove is not a project that's tied back to specific regions in terms of drilling necessarily. It's a project that provides a new marketplace for all of the Rockies producers to compete for. And, and it's, it's sometimes it's difficult to imagine, but the, 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 the gas market for Canada and for the U.S. is really just one big market. We have right. such great infrastructure this is that the everybody's going to benefit. of the rising mm-hmm. tide and all boats being lifted as a result. I will say that That's you, right. you'd still have to get separate approval to drill on public lands, of course. Uh, what do you tell people who are concerned that this only prolongs the world's reliance on fossil fuels and makes climate change worse? I think that uh, natural gas is probably been the single uh, most effective catalyst for reducing emissions. I think that as we see the Philippines and Bangladesh, Pakistan, Indonesia, you know, Singapore, Thailand, and, and many, many others build LNG capacity, they're going to continue to to switch over to natural gas, which is a cleaner burning fuel. We continue to see uh, domestic regulations get tighter and our emissions and leakage profiles go down. I think uh, natural gas will uh, continue to be a catalyst for uh, air quality improvement now and in the future, not just here, but overseas as uh, additional countries bring on the use of this fuel for electric generation, manufacturing, uh, home heating, and other uses. Uh, You talk about the idea that industry has been better at capturing uh, fugitive gases, methane, for instance, which is a powerful greenhouse gas uh, in drilling for gas. Uh, But my understanding is that to some extent, the natural gas that might come from the Rockies and be shipped to Asia 
is replacing nuclear power after some fears uh, following the Japanese reactor meltdown there. And um, nuclear power doesn't contribute to climate change. Replacing it with natural gas would presumably mean more carbon. Yeah, Ryan, I think that Japan is just a small piece to the overall dynamic that we see developing around the world when it comes to liquefied natural gas. Those those countries that I mentioned earlier are all countries that are are, are coming online. They're going to be tied in with Japan and, and how this new fungible global marketplace with LNG works. And that really Japan, Japan's uh, situation with their nuclear sectors is sort of unique. It's an anomaly, but it's not really one that we spend a lot of time contemplating. I mean, what, here in Western Colorado, we have natural gas. We produce it effectively and, and cleanly, uh, and we are wanting to develop new markets for it. And I think that Asia and, and other places around the world uh, are, are, are evolving in a way that's going to be beneficial for us. You know, one thing that I'm excited about is four years ago here in Western Colorado, the energy minister of Lithuania came to Grand Junction to oh. talk about how our gas is freeing them from the grips of Russia. And and just a few weeks ago, a few months ago, I guess, uh, the first LNG cargo from the U.S. landed in Lithuania and in Poland. And we are changing uh, the global dynamics with this fuel in ways that are going to make Colorado, Western Colorado, a player on the global stage and change how we view our community in terms of um, the role that we can play in promoting democracy, free markets, and stability in an area like as we hear about with North Korea is one of the most unstable in the world right now. And that's something that I think is beyond um, some of the 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 myopic or parochial issues that I, I often get bogged down on in projects like this that's really exciting for, for our state and for Western Colorado. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. David Ludlam leads the West Slope Colorado Oil and Gas Association. We talked about the proposed export terminal to ship natural gas from Colorado to new markets in Asia. It would leave from a port in Oregon. Jess Burns is a reporter with a public media collaborative called EarthFix, and she covers the Jordan Cove story. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Unlike in Colorado, in Oregon, this project would include building some new pipeline, more than 200 miles, I understand. Uh, there is also construction, of course, of the terminal itself. What concerns have you heard about all that? Well, I, I do think that there is a backdrop of concern about the continuation of fossil fuel development and its contribution to climate change. So there are many people in Oregon that just don't want to be part of that mix. And Oregon has has really not had to deal with that very much because we get so much of our power from hydro, the renewable uh, energy industry here is is relatively strong. you know, the environmental groups are saying that we should really you know, champion renewable energy projects as the economic driver instead of these fossil fuel projects. Um, you know, the pipeline itself, um, the, termin- the terminal is um, in a – well, let's, let's start with the terminal. The terminal is in an um, – there's concern because the terminal is in a earthquake and tsunami zone. Um, on the Oregon coast. Um, and it's, you know, the Cascadia subduction zone. We're expecting a big earthquake, um, you know, anytime, uh, from tomorrow until, uh, you know, hundreds of years from now. No. But there's, there's, there's a real consciousness lately that, that consciousness has risen about that and making things, um, earthquake proof as much as possible. Um, you know, the, the, the company has engineered uh, itself in a way that FERC has previously said that it'd be okay. 
on the environmental side, I would say more kind of the traditional environmental side. Um, you know, the pipeline uh, would cross 400 uh, water bodies. It's going to go through wetlands, forests, uh, some, including some old growth areas. And in those forests and water bodies, there's going to be several um, uh, Endangered Species Act listed species. You know, salmon, spotted owls, marbled merlets. Uh, these are things that are kind of, are on, you know, omnipresent. In any kind of land planning here in Oregon. Okay, so there's the concern about the terminal itself, the pipeline that would have to be built. You mentioned FERC, that's the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, that's yep. the, the regulator here. Uh, the feds have done two environmental reviews in rejecting the two previous applications for Jordan Cove. Have they found anything that's a deal breaker? You know, not really. Um, huh. The, 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 they came forward and they said there are going to be environmental impacts, um, but the impacts that are being um, that that are there can be either mitigated or lessened through kind of uh, you know just a rethinking of how things are done. And um, you know, FERC basically signed off on the environmental um, side of this. Um, the you know my understanding of the reason that they canceled it, uh, they they denied the previous. Um, uh, permit application was that you know the company had not proven that it uh, had had markets. It had um, it was a viable, commercially viable project, uh, and that because they hadn't done that, the impacts to property owners um, would be um, w- was was too great. Basically. Yeah, and- so since then, I'll say that uh, there have been customers that have come forward to buyers in Japan mm-hmm. that say they want this liquefied natural gas. And uh, there are quite a few property owners, indeed, who uh, have not yet said yes to the idea of having mm-hmm. a pipeline in their backyard, right? There, there's a real uphill battle there for the company. Yeah, the latest number I, I've heard uh, is that there's still un, uh, less than 50% of the property owners have made entered into any kind of agreement uh, with the company uh, to have the pipeline go through. And I, I think one of the really interesting things about this is that, you know, you have these environmental groups that are, you know, imposing, uh, opposing the development of this project, but really kind of the face of opposition to this project are those property owners. You know, people are really concerned about the use of eminent domain. And um, especially when um, I think it kind of rubs salt in the wounds that it's not even a, a U.S. company that's pushing this. So it's a Canadian company coming in and basically, in their mind, taking their property and de- decreasing the value, not necessarily compensating what they think is is it is worth. And um, that argument itself, I mean, South- Southwest Oregon, where this project is going to happen, is does lean pretty hard conservative. Um, so these environmental arguments don't get a lot of traction. But all of a sudden, you bring in these property rights arguments, yeah. and you get a lot of people that are really um, uh, sympathetic, basically, to the property owners. Oh, I can understand that. Well, in Colorado, uh, as we heard in the last segment, there's broad bipartisan political support for this pipeline and for the natural gas export terminal. That includes the Democratic governor here, our Democratic senator, a Republican senator here. What's the political support like in Oregon and how much will that come into play, do you think? Well, on the county level, I'd say that that, that most of the county commissions are all for this. They're um, very invested in economic development. This is natural resource 
um, extraction industry. Basically, we had timber, we have farming, we had, you know, it was founded on mining. And, you know, as the timber industry has kind of taken its 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 hits, um, there's a real kind of the tax base has, has dwindled quite a bit. And so any kind of development in this way, you know, the counties are all in. Uh, I would say the on the kind of the state end of it, there it, it's much more quiet. Not many people have come out um, and said anything. The governor has not has not uh, spoken in favor or in opposition to it. Hmm. Um, you know, the even if they get these federal permits, um, which everyone is really focused on, it still will have to go through a state permitting. And, um, you know, last last year about this time when um, basically the environmental groups and the property rights people had basically given up that FERC was going to do anything to stop the project, they really shifted their focus to the state side of this and trying to convince the state to deny the permits um, on our level. And um, so I, I think there was a lot of surprise when the when the when it was denied. But I think with the new administration, there's a feeling that 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 is going to have that new strategy of going back to the state is going to have to be employed again. I'll say your governor, uh, Kate Brown, is a Democrat. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for being with us. Yep, thank you. Jess Burns is a reporter for EarthFix, a public media reporting collaborative. She's based in Southern Oregon. And we talked about the Jordan Cove project and the connection between Oregon in this respect and Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And I'm Nathan Heffel. There's a brewery in Denver that's making more than just beer. It's creating job opportunities for people with developmental disabilities. Tony Sapanero loves his job as a beer tender at Brewability Lab. We stopped by recently to try a flight of brews and to talk with Sapanero about his newfound passion. That's our IPA, our amber, the strawberry blonde, and then that's the pumpkin chocolate. I like the porter because it kind of tastes like a chocolate brownie. It uses fresh coffee from with Roasters Brewery, um, roasting company that's right by the street, across the street from us. The thing that made me excited about beer is I really like the community uh, that's involved with the brewing community, and there's just like, there's so much knowledge and diversity and people in this kind of community that you wouldn't meet elsewhere. So that's what's really exciting to me. I've always been interested in science and chemistry. So when it was, uh, um, ended up being a lot of chemistry, that was really exciting. And brewing has improved my math skills a lot. So, I mean, that's really nice because just because of that is going to enable me to do other things because of those new skills. I've learned more than what I would have been thought would have been possible at going to like a standard college. And then I kind of just fell in love with the industry from there. What's challenging about this job is I think for the same reason I love it is um, it, sometimes it can be really hard working with people because it's hard to see and hear and it's hard to read their behavior and react to what they want when they want it Um, 
But I think that that's also one of the things I really like about it, too. Let's hear now from Sapanero's boss. Uh, <laughs> Tiffany Fixter owns Brewability Lab. Welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you have a background in working with children with developmental disabilities. Then you started to work with adults where you say you learned about the working crisis that they face. Why did you think a brewery could help with that? Well, I wanted to do something that was popular in Denver, so um, weed or, definitely. Weed or yeah. beer, <laughs> yes. So I uh, I chose a brewery because it's a, it's a safe community space. You know, it's not a bar. We're not slinging tequila. We're we're um, we're a safe space for everyone, and um, it's very social. And they're and, oftentimes isolated. And you came to Colorado to run an adult day program for people with developmental disabilities, and you said you were alarmed by what you found. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, um, it's kind of weird because it's actually across the street mm. from here. Mm. Um, yeah, it's just they they don't have a lot of opportunities. You know, they have a lot of volunteer opportunities, but um, paid employment is really difficult. Most of the time they're either nonverbal or non-readers or, you know, money is Difficult, And so um, any of those things make someone deemed unemployable by the state. So they actually can't get a job. In in 2015, 34% of people with disabilities, not just developmental disabilities, were employed in the U.S. That's less than half of the number employed without a disability. And those numbers from the University of New Hampshire include a range of physical and mental disabilities. You say more people with developmental disabilities would like to be working. Absolutely. Yeah. They they need a purpose. Talk more about that. So, I mean, if, if you're just going to a room where you sit and you color every single day from the age of 21 until you pass away, um, there's really no drive to get up in the morning. They're frustrated. They don't want to be stringing beads anymore. You know, they, they want to be out in the community doing what everybody else is doing. Your operation is, is fairly small. You have six employees. Um, You say most are in the autism spectrum and Mm -hmm. that the first shift of one of your employees was just five minutes, Uh, but that you've seen major changes in this employee since. Yeah. So um, Patrick is um, a lot of our customers' favorite beer tenders. Everybody kind of has a favorite. They all each have a fan club. Um, Everyone is loved. And Patrick um, was pretty pretty nonverbal when he started, um, just speaking only a few words. And, um, you know, it was hard for him to get used to the environment. So we'd start out with him coming in, we'd play his favorite song, he'd hold a glass, and that was it for five minutes. And then he'd come back the next week. And we tried it for a little bit longer. And we made it really reinforcing. And um, now he loves it. Now he works over 10 hours a week. And um, his parents drive all the way from Castle Rock, just to bring him out to I-70 in Peoria. So that's that's quite, a haul. Quite the haul. <laughs> yeah, especially with traffic in Denver. So um, they definitely have commitment because they see the difference in him. I mean, he's a totally different person at work, He's and he's speaking in full sentences now. I mean, it is amazing what he's what he's able to say and describe. And your goal early on was to to have this on-the-job training and eventually have these employees start to work at other breweries. But that hasn't taken place. Why is that? Um, I think they they need a lot more support than um, what I was imagining at first. How I, so? 
It just depends on their range of skills. Um, we have Devin, who's an assistant brewer. We do think that, you know, um, if he can continue with his path of brewing and learning, um, I do think he can get employed at another brewery. Um, whereas I have other guys that need constant um, assistance and, and just making sure they're okay. Some days are great. Other days they need more help. Um, and I try to make sure that I'm fading out those supports so that they're not dependent on me. And how are you fading those out? So it just depends on the day and what they need. Um, sometimes they need picture schedules. Sometimes they just need uh, me to point and remind them to do something. Because well, I, I want to note that your menu at the brewery has colors for, yes. for maybe some employees who are non-readers to say, well, okay, that's red. I can I can match that. Yeah. So um, the color coding is is for a lot of reasons. It's for our bartenders who are non-readers. It's for our customers um, who may not be able to read or um, just struggle a little bit. We do have some people with disabilities that are coming in on a consistent basis. Um, and then we also have a Braille menu for um, individuals who are visually impaired. Um, I have one beer tender who is who is blind. So. You you want your ex- your operation to expand, though, uh, yes. especially because you have a growing list of people who want to work for you. Why do you think that is? Are they struggling to find work elsewhere? You've mentioned that. I think that the parents are realizing that there there is full support here. You know, through the state, they can only offer so much support due to funding. Um, I know that it's, it's pretty common for job coaches to come in maybe even one, two hours a month to support someone um, who has a developmental disability who's placed at, you know, a, a retail store. And, um, you know, my staff needs a lot more than that. And you, you're thinking about going nonprofit as well. I am considering that right now. It's only been a year that we've been open. Um, our location is pretty hard, so... Financially, it's it's a little tough, but um, is there any funding from the state coming for this? No. Why not? No. Um, they said it was because I um, have stated that I employ adults with developmental disabilities, and they'd like to see a more competitive employment. Um, so they'd like to see you know two or three neurotypical people per person with special needs. Um, but that's not realistic um, where we are and, and the size of the brewery. In terms of the the profitability and things like that and and, and being able to... Well, that and just I want them to be as independent as possible. So if you have someone um, that's constantly shadowing you and almost being like a para, um, they're not going to grow as much because then they're not forced to do it. I don't want someone else doing it for them. I see. You say that most people who visit the brewery are aware of your mission, but occasionally people people do, are not aware of your, your mission. How do they react? Um, it's been really interesting. So we have some people that come in and and they're like, well, I saw the colors and I don't really know what's going on. And then they, they realize and, and they just kind of light up. Um, you know, even these big truckers and blue collar workers that are coming in, they're like, I didn't. I didn't know that I could interact with someone with special needs. And it's like, yeah, yeah, they're very skilled. They just got so, you a beer and could have a conversation. And, um, you know, it re- I think it really opens people's eyes that um, maybe wouldn't seek out interacting someone with different needs. It's learning on both sides. Yeah, absolutely. What do you want to say to people who uh, want to grab a beer at your bar? Um, just to be patient with us. You know, sometimes it does take a little bit more time for us to get you a beer, um, but it'll be well worth it because um, you'll definitely end up with a new friend. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.
Tiffany Fixter owns Brewability Lab in Denver, which provides opportunities to adults with developmental disabilities. She spoke with my colleague, Nathan Heffel. There's a new twist on Walden, Henry David Thoreau's memoir about two years he spent in nature away from the rat race. Walden, A Life in the Woods is a movie set in Colorado and filmed here. It premieres this weekend at the Denver Film Festival. And Alex Harvey is the director. Alex, welcome to the show. Hi, welcome. Thanks. Walden, or Life in the Woods, was published in 1854. Thoreau writes about his time in seclusion on a pond in Massachusetts. I wonder, first off, what kind of impression it made on you. Well, I think that, um, you know, we have a, as a culture, probably we have a uh, idea of what Walden is, right? So, you know, you grow up going to high school and in your American English class, usually in 10th grade, uh, you are given a chapter or half of a chapter and uh, it's part of a maybe a one or two day transcendentalism unit and and then we kind of move on. So it's one of those classic, iconic, canonical works that we all feel like we know because we've read um, one little section of. Um, You know, I think that uh, the book itself – and Thoreau's journey and story are, of course, so much larger and broader and richer and more prismatic than just the sort of sliver that we're all mostly accustomed to. So for me, I think what uh, what really moves me about the book is how, how Thoreau advocates a different attitude towards daily life, um, towards – our moment-to-moment experience um, and towards how we uh, treat and view the time that we're spending in our lives. Um, And you weave all of that uh, into this film uh, in which three storylines intersect. There is a man who's struggling to pay for his family's comfortable lifestyle. There's a gay couple conflicted over whether to be uh, city mice or country mice. And an, an older woman with dementia who sketches what she can remember, often nature scenes and images of her late husband, and uh, their lives intersect in a sort of literal sense. But beyond that, what what do you think all these characters have in common? Well, I think that, um, like I said, I think Thoreau is advocating that we look at our at how we view the time that we spend in our lives. And there's usually something in all of our stories and all the battles that we as human beings and these four characters are fighting inside. There's something that we can give up. That is what Thoreau believes. There is a surrender that everyone is capable of. And on the other side of that surrender is a different experience of time, one where we receive it rather than generate it ourselves. Mm. Um, So in a certain sense, it's four different uh, perspectives of – of what it means to be vulnerable, what it means to go through a threshold of laying down your arms uh, in whatever personal, uh, psychological relationship, societal battle that you are fighting. And uh, yeah, with in these, our film, yeah, go ahead. With these four characters all together, uh, the couple, the father, 
uh, this older woman. You, you shot the film in the Denver Boulder area and in the mountains. Uh, sometimes, though, it has a kind of generic suburban quality. That's often the backdrop for the character Ramirez. Uh, he's played by Academy Award-winning actor Demian Bashir, uh, who is in Weeds. Ramirez wants to be the perfect family man, but he's stressed about making ends meet. His benefits were cut at work. And to make matters worse, his boss at the nursing home where he works makes him deliver bad news to the custodian. Um, in, in this scene, Ramirez tells the custodian that if he wants to keep working there, he'll have to become an independent contractor. This has nothing to do with your performance or your, your, your skills. Or I mean, we love you, man. This is just very difficult times right now. We really hope... You'll say, you are the best. You know what? You're okay, man. You're okay. You just need to stop shoveling other people's shit, man. Oh, you can imagine Ramirez feels pretty icky after that. And just to give you a fuller sense of this character, in another scene, he is picking up a prescription of some kind for his daughter, and he finds the cost is much more than he expected. So he hops on the phone with his insurance company, uh, it's a customer service call I think many people in modern life will relate to. How can I help you, sir? Look, uh, it seems like uh, there's, uh, there's a mistake with my policy. You see, my, my uh, doors medication should be included in this, uh, my plan. Sir, may I have your policy number, please, sir? I don't, I don't have it with me. Okay, then we'll need your name, last name first, please. Sure, absolutely. Uh, it's, uh, last name is Ramirez, R-A-M. As in nosebleed? No, M. M as in uh, Mark. Ah, M as in Mark. Okay. I love that N stands for nosebleed. But there's just a sense that this guy can't quite catch a break. And it's interesting because in Ramirez's house, again, somewhere in the Colorado suburbs, um, items inside, like the lamps, couches, coffee tables, all have labels on them. What are the labels? Well, you know, um, again, uh, it was those uh, – as many of the images and gestures in the film come straight out of the prose of Thoreau and um, Thoreau talks about the cost that things uh, cost us, that the worth of things is not actually um, monetary worth but it is temporal worth, time itself. So on the we actually called those in production time tags instead of price tags. Each one of those tags in the house uh, shows an hour, minute, and second, and those are the uh, those that that is literally the amount of time that Ramirez has spent for that object to be in his life. Um, and uh, it's a real trade-off from Thoreau's point of view that we uh, give up our time for these things that ultimately uh, bring very little meaning to our lives um, when time has a whole other value. I mean, I have to say this blew my mind because I think the next time I buy a shirt or some sort of trinket, <laughs> I'm really going to think about it in terms of how much of my working life did I have to contribute to make that possible. Um, another storyline that to me really directly relates to Walden is about a couple in Boulder, these two men who've fallen in love. Uh, one of them, Luke, leads his partner Guy on a hiking trip in the Rockies. And Luke takes him to a beautiful cabin that he's built by himself. 
It certainly conjures up images of Thoreau's cabin, and at first Guy is mesmerized, but then he realizes that Luke wants them to move into this cabin full time. You want to live here? Look, we'll take it slow. I mean, a week at a time, and then uh, a few weeks, and then, you know, a month. I mean, we can, we can finish this place together. You know, when it's right. We really do it, babe. What, in this fantasy, I, I quit my job? I mean, what are we going to do for money? You know, we work jobs when we need to. You know, I mean, you have been so anxious. That's a clip from the new film Walden Life in the Woods, which premieres this weekend at the Denver Film Festival. And we're speaking with its director, Alex Harvey. A guy ends up running away and heading back to civilization, leaving Luke at the cabin. What do you think this says about, I don't know, each man's perception of things? Yeah, well, you've just said it, each man's perception. And I think that's what it says. I think we, you know, we look towards Hollywood or the news for a right answer. We look for a binary. Um, We want to know, we open Thoreau maybe in our older age and we look for some kind of answer to what what isn't making sense to us. But of course, if you read deeply, um, Thoreau will tell you over and over, don't come to me after this book is published and ask me uh, to interpret my words, because by that time, I may simply disagree with them already. And I think that in this case, you have uh, two ideas. Um, you know, these, these, these fellas are in a relationship with each other, and each one of them has an idea of the other one that isn't matching up to their own narrative at that particular given time. So I think what we're trying to do in the story is show you that as a viewer, that the choice to give something up is never never necessarily binary or a clear black and white good uh, or bad choice. Uh, and you know the, the the character of Guy is choosing is realizing that um, he spent time with Luke, kind of conceiving of himself as a less conventional person than he act- than the truest version of himself actually is. So in uh, leaving the cabin and in, in going home, Guy is actually realizing that he hasn't been himself in this particular relationship. And uh, even if he believes there is a uh, an idea of a better life, a simpler life, um, that idea is failing him and he needs to let go of it. You are unafraid in this film of silence. I think it's like the first four minutes that are almost entirely without dialogue. Does that make a director's job harder? Not at all. Um, In fact, I would say my work is to clear the noise away as much as possible in terms of storytelling, Um, especially with the medium of cinema. Um, I think that, you know, silence, um, is a step that we can take towards being alone with ourselves. This is very much, of course, what Thoreau was talking about. A lot of times I actually say that Thoreau was a filmmaker before his time. He speaks so much about silence and he speaks so much in what I would call long takes, which is a phrase I'm using from cinematic tools um, to apply to how Thoreau saw himself moving through his life. So it's really an amazing uh, opportunity to use a different medium to explore 
what he's advocating and to put an audience directly in the experience of silence where they have to sit with themselves or with an image or with a single shot over a period of time. And I think that Colorado audiences in particular may resonate with this film because so many people have come here searching for a connection with the outdoors, a connection with something bigger than themselves. Thanks so much for being with us. That's Alex Harvey, director of the film Walden, Life in the Woods, which premieres this weekend. It was largely filmed in Colorado, and the crew comes from here. The Denver Film Festival runs through November 11th. You can watch a trailer at CPR. Dot org.